0: Welcome back to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm Lisa Daftari. The Biden administration continuing to struggle to keep up with its campaign promises, even when they don't make sense or jeopardize our national security, whether it's at the southern border or at the negotiating table in Vienna. Another JCPOA Iran nuclear deal. Well, that's the goal. Meanwhile, lawmakers in Washington are warning the president and the administration against another bad deal with Iran. It's going to let the regime off the hook for its weapons program, for its terror spending, and of course the human rights violations back at home. To make sense of all of this, I call upon my good friend, Mark Dubowitz, the CEO of FDD, the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, which is a D.C.-based nonpartisan policy institute. He is an expert on the Iran nuclear program and widely recognized as one of the key influencers in countering threats from the regime in Iran. And, of course, his claim to fame in 2019, the Islamic Republic sanctioned. Mark, along with FDD, calling them the designing and executing, uh, executing arm of the U.S. administration on Iran policy. Welcome to the program, Mark. Uh, This is a very big accusation that the Islamic Republic makes, and of course, even bigger shoes to fill.
1: Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Yeah, I mean the Islamic Republic, of course, is uh, certainly obsessed with conspiracy theories, and I think one of their conspiracy theories is that FDD is at the heart of the U.S. government's Iran policy. Uh, We're obviously a think tank. We provide research, analysis, and we obviously would love to see the end of the Islamic Republic. But uh, I think their obsession with FDD speaks poorly uh, of how much clarity and and realism actually governs in in Tehran. So anyway, it was uh, a badge of honor on one hand. On the other (laughs) hand, we're taking uh, necessary security precautions to protect our people.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, I imagine that it's... uh it is it is a compliment. I mean, they are definitely watching what you're doing. You're doing something that's getting under their skin, but how does it work to be sanctioned? What, is it, what, what does that mean? I mean, how did you find out? Just walk us through that.
1: Yeah, so it was uh, one morning in uh, August, I think of 2019, I believe, the Iranian government actually had a press conference and they released a statement saying that they were sanctioning us. Um, they, they also said that they were green lighting the Iranian security services uh, to do anything that they needed to do in order to, quote, counter, deter and punish us. So that was really a green light for the security services, for the IRGC, for the Ministry of Intelligence to use whatever resources they needed in order to, to go after us. So it was a badge of honor on one hand. On the other hand, obviously, it was a, a serious security concern. And it was,
0: Yeah. I imagine, I mean, it's very mature of them. You know, you work on sanctioning them and of course they sanction you. So tit for tat, huh?
1: Yeah. I mean, the sanctions themselves have no meaning. I mean, it's not as if I, you know, have a bank account in Iran or have any intention, unfortunately, of, of uh, being able to visit Iran. I'm, I'm looking forward to l- visiting a free and democratic Iran, but I'm not going there anytime soon. So in terms of travel restrictions or, you know, acid freezes or Financial sanctions it's, it's meaningless, but what it is meaningful is that it's, it's a threat, and it's right. a threat to a think tank that, that, thankfully, everybody in Washington took seriously, and there was a huge amount of bipartisan support from both Democrats and Republicans, from many officials, from Clinton, Bush, uh, Obama and, uh, and Biden administration now who, who've come out and condemned it. So I, I think it backfired on the Islamic Republic when they went after us.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's their MO, isn't it? You know, just kind of try to silence people who speak about the Islamic Republic and um, really um, uh, unveil a lot of what they're doing, whether they're journalists. I mean, you and I both have spoken about this in the past, about how um, they just try to silence the opposition, whether it's inside the country or outside.
1: No, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, there's so many brave Iranians, both inside Iran and outside Iran, who speak in Spoken out against the Islamic Republic, um, and sadly you know some have have paid with their lives, others are being incarcerated in uh, the most terrible conditions and I, I think fundamentally Lisa that the the regime in Iran um, understands that they're they're hated by the majority of their people and it, it, it creates a, a real insecurity and a real fear and paranoia and so they you know their only answer to that is not to debate people and in terms of you know free exchange of ideas, but to target them uh, physically and uh, and psychologically, and I think that's certainly their their mo over forty years.
0: Yeah, I mean that that's I think uh, an astute observation to say. Um, you know, it's the people that is the Achilles heel of the government, right? When they push forward on the global stage, but back at home, they know that that's their um, you know that that's that's where they they lack the confidence to to move forward. Uh, I want to get your sportscaster take on what's going on in, in Vienna right now. Obviously, a lot of buildup towards this. Um, you know, uh, President Biden, then uh, candidate Biden ran on this. So we're going to go get right back into the deal. I mean, not looking at any of the evidence, not looking at any of the, you know, the, the optics, as we always call it. You know, things are different from when, you know, we went under this deal in 2015 with President Obama. Even then it was a bad deal. Even then it didn't make sense. But now it's it's even worse. I mean, what's your take? What's going on there? Um, how did we get here?
1: Yeah, first of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, it was six years later and um, the deal's even worse than it was in 2015 because fundamentally the deal was a, a deeply flawed agreement because of these sunset provisions that uh, allowed over time Iran to build up an industrial-sized nuclear program with near-zero nuclear breakout, a, an advanced centrifuge clandestine sneak out. Um, were they were able to continue to test and develop their ballistic missiles, including developing an intercontinental ballistic missile. And they would get, and they got tens and hundreds of billions of dollars of, of economic relief in order to fuel their war machine and their domestic security apparatus so that they can continue Repressing Iranians inside Iran and uh, destroying lives in the region. The agreement six years later, right? We're now six years into it, and, and many of those restrictions that I'm talking about are actually have already come off or will be coming off in the next few years. So it is um, foolhardy to be going back into this deeply flawed agreement, but that's certainly the direction that we're we're going in.
0: Yeah, and you know what's interesting is, you know, the, the headlines, the mainstream media, and how, you know, instead of reporting on what's going on, it's almost as if they're ahead of it. They're they're pushing the narrative. Here are two examples of uh, headlines. Um, one by NBC, Iran welcomes new chapter in nuclear talks as Washington seeks to heal profound differences in Vienna. Another one by the New York Times, Iran and US agree to path. Back to the nuclear deal. That's false. That's actually false. They didn't agree on, uh, you know, on, on how they're going to move forward or exactly what will happen. But they're waiting for, you know, either both sides are waiting for, for the other side to compromise. I mean, wh- why does it behoove the mainstream media to push forward this narrative?
1: Look, the, the mainstream media has been bought into the the JCPOA from the beginning. Um, it was, you know, part of President Obama's um, legacy. It was his only foreign policy, quote unquote, accomplishment. And uh, and then, you know, Donald Trump had the audacity to come in and, and withdraw from the JCPOA and sink President Obama's legacy. And, you know, the mainstream media, many journalists um, who are, are Democrats, who supported President Obama, support President Biden, uh, want to see the JCPOA succeed and want to see that legacy rehabilitated i mean i think that that is the reason and then there are you know listen there are really good reporters who play it straight play it down the middle who are reporting on what's going on um people are interested in the sort of TikTok of what's happening in vienna i find it far less interesting because i think the the um the result is already set in stone i mean we know what's going to happen so nice. i don't know why it's so interesting about what's going on every day but that's a, you know that's a reporter's job is to report on that TikTok and the daily hurly burly of what's happening and and there are some very good reporters and and you know we, uh, your viewers should follow them but you should always be careful to make sure that you appreciate that behind some of the stories there's a, d- a deep ideological position um, in, strongly in favor of the JCPOA and preserving president obama's uh, important legacy
0: you know uh, partisan politics aside let's not talk about obama or trump or now biden Um, is there a way to get into a good Iran nuclear deal at this moment? Well,
1: look, I I think, first of all, I think it's important that we understand what is a good Iran policy, uh, as opposed to being obsessively focused on a deal. Um, You know, when when Ronald Reagan came into office in uh, 1981, what, what Reagan appreciated was that the Soviet Union was ideologically financially bankrupt and all he had to do was uh, institute a maximum pressure campaign to to crack the regime. Um, I think that's what we need to do as the United States. We need to understand that the Islamic Republic is ideologically bankrupt, it's economically bankrupt, um, and the majority of Iranians despise it. So we are are in a position as the United States where with the right amount of pressure, economic, financial, um, covert action, um, support for Iranian Democrats, and uh, and the like, we we have a very good opportunity to crack the Islamic Republic. Now that should be our policy. And then we can decide whether we want to reach, you know, nuclear arms control agreements with with the regime. The way Reagan reached arms control agreements with the Soviet Union throughout the nineteen eighties, but he never lost sight of the fact that mm-hmm. the Soviet Union needed needed to be consigned to the ash heap of history like the Islamic Republic does.
0: You know, the the path you just outlined, which is completely sound in my mind, um, towards, you know, what type of of Iran policy we should take, um, leads to a conclusion that we should crack the Islamic Republic, that we should crack this regime because of all the reasons you mentioned and because of of their vulnerability and to use our leverage. And that obviously is very sound foreign policy. Now, is it that the Biden administration and, and previously the Obama administration had a different path to the same end? Or was it that their end game was completely different from the one that you just outlined?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Lisa. I I think that there's a real split in uh, the thinking in the Democratic Party and and in both administrations. I think there are some people who understand that this is a malign and, and dangerous regime and are under no illusions about that. Um, but they also believe that this regime with the nuclear weapons would be even more dangerous and even more destructive. And, and they're absolutely right. And they support the JCPOA as the best agreement to limit the capacity of the regime to build nuclear weapons. I may have a disagreement with them on the JCPOA and, and the best tactic, but I'm in complete agreement with them on the nature of this regime. But then there are other people who believe the best way to actually solve this problem is seduce the hard men of Tehran by flooding them with cash, integrating the Islamic Republic into the global economy, and by making them rich you'll make them moderates. Now of course that hasn't worked with Putin, it hasn't worked with Xi Jinping in China. In fact there's no historical example of it ever working. I think it's an illusion and it's a delusion but it's certainly a delusion that was held by John Kerry and um, Rob Malley and, and others who have been very involved in the Iran issue. By the way there's a third group of people Um, who I just prefer not to engage with, and those are regime sympathizers and those who defend the Islamic Republic. But I think that the first two groups understand the nature of this regime. Um, One group I think is wrong about the JCPOA, but right about how evil this regime is. The other group is right about how evil this regime is, but wrong about the fact that you can actually change an evil regime by seducing them with with cash and, and economic goodies.
0: Right. The appeasement that President Obama introduced to our foreign policy and, and now continues with the Biden administration. The third group you speak of, um, we have many guests come on our show and um, obviously mention the third group and and. Um, Perhaps we we should take a moment to say, you know, the, the second group who wants to, you know, appease and release this cash, perhaps for an end game that will make a more moderate Iran, and maybe that's not their end game, they have been heavily influenced by the third group that you mentioned, and I'll be more um, specific. These are regime sympathizers. They're apologists for the regime that operate in Washington, D.C. They operate in Los Angeles, in expat communities um, all over the United States. They are basically the propaganda arm uh, of the Iranian regime here on U.S. soil, and they're extremely influential. This is what people may not know. They're extremely influential from, you know, releasing their bots on Twitter um, to shut down the. The narrative against a JCPOA and in favor of human rights um, advocacy for the Iranian people. They're also the people who are in Biden's ear and in Blinken's ear and in Rob Malley's ear, telling them that they should go forward with a JCPOA because that's the right thing to do. So um, this is uh, and I appreciate you mentioning it because I think it's, it's very important to combat this narrative with the correct narrative of this is what you get when you go down this path of appeasement with Iran, uh, it won't be the the out the outcome uh, that that they are pushing for. Um, you actually penned uh, an op ed with um, Raul Garrick, um and about a a couple weeks ago. And uh, you outlined the reasons why you shouldn't get uh, back into a a JCPOA. And I I love the last line. I think it summarizes the entire piece because you start off talking about how um, the Supreme Leader of Iran is basically thumping his chest once again. And he says, you know what, we can can take it or leave it. We don't really need an Iran nuclear deal. And the final line of your piece is, and the President of the United States could reply to the Supreme Leader, I don't need to return to the JCPOA either. In the middle East's endless hard power contest, that would be a momentous next step.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly, look, you know, it's, it's sad to say, but the best practitioner of, of hard power politics in the Middle East, I would argue one of the best practitioners in the world, is the Iranian Supreme Leader, Ali Khamenei. I mean, he has been remarkably adept at facing off against multiple U.S. presidents, both Democrats and Republicans, um, and getting the better of them. And I think the reason for that is, despite his tremendous insecurity about the survival of his regime, he's tremendously secure and confident that the great powers, particularly the United States, but the Europeans as well, will back down in the face of uh, Iranian nuclear extortion and escalation. And and he's right. I mean, more often than not, presidents do back down. Now, now President Trump. There was a cu- couple of rare occasions where he didn't back down, and there were important occasions. One was when he killed Qasem Soleimani, right? It was something that everybody said would lead to World War III, and, and no U.S. president was willing to do that. Trump did it, um, and there was a huge blow to the regime. But even then, under President Trump, there were, there, that was an important moment, and, and he was certainly escalating economically against the regime, but all the while withdrawing U.S. troops from the Middle East, signaling that, that they you know had no dog in the fight. Um, and that's just a signal to Khamenei that he just needs to be patient and take patient pathways, mm-hmm. not only the nuclear weapons, but the regional dominance as well.
0: Yeah. And that brings me to my next uh, question. Um, today, the GOP pushed back uh, with a letter um, that put Biden on notice and said, look, we're not bound by a, a new Iran deal. You can do whatever you want. We're not going to sign off on releasing the, the, the sanctions. Um this is this is a very very um ugly for lack of a better word moments in in u.s foreign policy domestic policy just all of it u.s politics when you have for example the assassination killing whatever you want to call it of of awesome soleimani but then people back at home you know are, are more critical of the president uh for taking out a terrorist than they are of the the act of, of killing you know one of, of of the world's most wanted or you know nancy pelosi and chuck schumer defending China over our own president at the time, President Trump, and now you have our negotiators at the table in Vienna, and you have half of our lawmakers saying, "Wait a minute, we're not on board with this." What kind of message? Obviously, the mullahs are celebrating this division. They're always celebrating division with this, within this country. Um, what kind of message is this sending them? And you know, what? What? How damaging is this?
1: It's interesting. I mean, I think it's a damaging message that's being sent to. Uh, to the regime, but I think it's actually an incredibly important message and positive message that's being sent to the market. Because remember, Lisa, you know, the the Biden administration can lift sanctions, can provide exemptions, can issue waivers, but at the end of the day, the decisions are going to be made by hundreds of thousands of CEOs and chief legal officers and chief risk officers in international companies and banks who are going to have to make a decision about whether they want to re-engage in business with the Islamic Republic, knowing that Most of the strategic sectors of the economy are controlled by the Revolutionary Guards. And then even if President Biden lifts sanctions on the Central Bank of Iran or the National Iranian Oil Company or the National Iranian Tanker Company or 300 entities that have been designated for terrorism, the IRGC, the fundamental malign activity um, of the Islamic Republic and of those entities will continue, will persist. And so they'll be taking an enormous risk if they go back to doing business with the Islamic Republic, Mm -hmm. especially, as you point out, when the entire Republic party opposes the return of the JCPOA, reposes sanctions relief and has said on record time and time again, when we take back power in 2022 and in, in the house or Senate or in the white house in 2024, we're going to reinstate these sanctions. So that is a message of caution of, of what I think is a certain measure of deterrence against the market embracing the JCPOA, even as you know, the Biden administration moves forward on, on this dangerous deal.
0: Yeah. And I know you've always, uh, you know, it's in your Twitter bio, but you've always have, you know, teetered on the that nonpartisan line because of the nature of the subjects that you cover um, and, you know, Iran policy being one of them. Why isn't there more of a nonpartisan line? You know, Secretary of State Blinken, um, and this was very reassuring to someone like myself, maybe you, you recall this as well, in the first weeks of of coming into office, he said, we want to actually recruit people on both sides of the political aisle to work on the Iran issue. When we go to that table, we want all sides represented. Um, No one from the, you know, be careful side um, has been called to my knowledge. I've I've talked to a lot of people who are, are, you know, in the top Twenty-five experts in this country um, on the topic have been contacted to, you know, provide some sort of insight from their perspective. Have you been contacted? Do you know anyone who has been contacted? Yeah, I
1: mean, I, to their credit, I, I, I'm in regular touch with them. Um, I, I speak to the administration all the time on the issue, um, so they're, you know, they're open to hearing different ideas. The, the the real question is not whether they're going to contact me or contact other experts. The real issue is, you know. At, is that going to have any influence on their, the direction? Yeah, exactly, of, of right. Exactly. And I see, no, I see no evidence that it is. I mean, I see, I see evidence that what Tony Blinken is doing uh, is running a political strategy, a very effective political strategy in Washington, um, where he's sounding like Tom Cotton, but he's negotiating like John Kerry. You know, it's, hmm. sort of, it's kind of John Kerry with a Tom Cotton voiceover, right? Tom Cotton, obviously the senator from Alabama, or Ron Hawk, who's going to lead the way in, in the Senate uh, against the Islamic Republic, John right. Kerry, who negotiated a poor 2015 nuclear deal, right? But by sounding like Tom Cotton while negotiating with, like John Kerry, what he's trying to do is reassure Democrats, particularly the Democrats who opposed the JCPOA in 2015, and he's trying to crack the Republican consensus on Iran. He's trying to peel away certain Republicans who um, may not want to escalate, may have other priorities. Um, may have other reasons to be reassured by Secretary Blinken's um, words. And those words are, look, we're going back to the JCPOA, we're going to lift the most powerful sanctions, but then, Lisa, we're going to negotiate a longer, stronger, broader deal. So just just trust us, right. that we're going to have the leverage to get a better deal on Iran. I, I'm obviously skeptical, and we can, we can talk about that as well.
0: Right. Yeah. Within the first hours of, of being in Vienna, it was announced that the sanctions will be removed. And, um, you know, giving up leverage like that, um, it does not signal a longer and stronger um, deal whatsoever. Uh, in the backdrop of all of this is some more um, alarming, perhaps um, in the long term, news about China and Iran. Um, strange, but not so strange, bedfellows two of uh, probably the most um, uh, important adversaries that we have right now in in terms of U.S. foreign policy. China now uh, making a 25-year deal with Iran um, to the tune of $400 billion uh, for oil and obviously influence, influence in the region, in the country. They basically purchased uh, Iran with that price tag.
1: Yeah, no, listen, first of all, I mean, I I don't, I, I don't necessarily buy the numbers. I, I think that there's a lot of exaggeration in those numbers. I mean, I think the Chinese obviously are going to have significant influence inside Iran. And I think a lot of Iranians are, are rightly upset about that. Um, but the Chinese are also playing the great power game in the Middle East. Uh, they don't want to burn alliances with the Saudis on, on which they depend for oil and investment, the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, the Israelis. Um, so they're playing, they're playing all sides. So I think we should be careful not to exaggerate. How big a deal this is. And I think the other thing we should point out is that this deal would come to nothing, basically, if the United States was serious about enforcing sanctions. Because when the United States is serious about enforcing sanctions against Chinese banks and Chinese oil companies, what happens? The Chinese actually stop buying Iranian oil and stop investing in the Iranian energy sector and stop processing financial transactions through Chinese banks. And that's actually what we've seen in the past. So this is an indication, Lisa that the Chinese are rightly assessing that the Biden administration has no interest in continuing to enforce sanctions. Right. Um, and so they're moving in and cutting deals and buying oil. I mean, they just bought almost a million barrels of oil in March, a huge increase from last year when the Trump administration was enforcing sanctions against Chinese oil purchases. Right. Um, but it's its every indication that you know the Chinese at least have gotten the green light from the Biden administration and from Vienna that it's, um, the market is open and they're, they're going to move in.
0: Yeah, yeah, but what is, I mean, yes, long term, What even in the next four years, right? They're off the hook for at least four years. What, right. what are the short term ramifications, Len?
1: Well, the short term ramifications is that the Islamic Republic and the regime itself, uh, which was facing a severe economic crisis, balance of payments crisis, running out of foreign exchange reserves, uh, not having enough money to pay uh, Hezbollah or Assad or Hamas or uh, proxies in, in Iraq uh, was really being squeezed under maximum pressure has now all of a sudden gotten an, an economic lifeline um, of billions of dollars that will not only flow from sanctions relief, right. but also flow from Chinese investment in Chinese oil purchases. And mm-hmm. that is a huge, I mean, essentially, it's once again, like we had in 2015, we had the Islamic Republic on their knees, right, instead of putting them on their back, we, 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 again, we just flinched and we're now reaching out and providing them that, that lifeline to get up, back up on their feet um, so that the Islamic Republicans survive for another who knows how many years. And, and that's just a huge opportunity lost, as I said earlier. I mean, that, that's what Reagan recognized in, 80, in 81 and mm-hmm. 83, he implemented maximum pressure out of his mm-hmm. NSC, And he recognized that after decades of um, accommodating the Soviet Union, now it's time to put them on their back. And six okay. years later, the Berlin Wall came down. And a year after that, the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm-hmm. Reagan recognized this was a weak regime that could get cr- that could crack. We should recognize the same thing about the Islamic Republic and support Iranians in their uh, oh. attempt to, to overthrow this regime.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you you nailed it. I think one of the, the the discussions we often have is, you know, um, you said opportunity lost, and I think when people go back to the 2015 deal, what they really should do is go back to 2009. Uh, when they go back to 2015, people say, well, what you didn't want an Iran nuclear deal. What did you want? War. And that's always the alternative that people look at rather than saying, well, the people came out in 2009. That was the Obama administration's biggest missed opportunity to really ride that momentum, that grassroots uprising where the people said, we've had enough. We're telling the world our story. We exist, we're 80 million strong and we want out. We don't want this regime anymore. And instead of riding that wave, they stopped that wave and allowed for the nuclear deal to come about years later. Um, And now we're continuing with that. But the Iranian people continue to tell us their stories. One of the things I'd love for you to clarify for us, and and, and because you are on the, the front lines with regards to sanctions, what sanctions are on Iran, how they work, this is a debate that we often have. I am of Iranian descent, obviously. I communicate Every day with the Iranian people, um, many of whom tell us, you know, we're, we're not mad at the United States because of sanctions, even though they're very hard. Uh, but we understand that this is um, means to an end. We know that the pressure is the only thing that worked. It worked under the Trump years, and now um, we're letting the, the, you know, our regime off the hook. Others, um, and these are mostly the third group that you mentioned: those appeasers, those, those apologists, the ones that are shifting the narrative in Washington. They continue to tell the story of the sanctions. The sanctions are killing the people. We have to, we have to remove the sanctions. We have to remove the sanctions. There was just a slideshow a couple of days ago by NPR about how the Iranian people are buckling under sanctions. I mean, why not talk about how the Iranian people are buckling under their government, not the U.S. sanctions? Um, so, I, you know, what, what is that clear view? What are the sanctions? I mean, how, um, how are they placed? Are they placed on the people of Iran? What are the damages to? David life? And how do the Iranian people, in your view, uh, see the sanctions?
1: Yeah, so I mean, the sanctions regime is is complicated, but I mean, it it boils down to this. So the United States imposes sanctions on uh, malign conduct, on dangerous conduct, and not only on the Islamic Republic, but on uh, numerous regimes and terrorist organizations around the world. And they're predicated on a very thorough detail. Detailed, exhaustive process of gathering evidence that confirms that the entities or the individuals in question are engaged in support for terrorism or money laundering or support for um, missile or nuclear proliferation, uh, human rights abuses, corruption. And uh, the US Treasury Department, which has historically taken the lead on these sanctions uh, and its Office of Foreign Assets Control, goes through this exhaustive process, puts together these sanctions dossiers. And then designates these entities. Um, there's obviously been there have been you know thousands of sanctions imposed on the Islamic Republic, on the Revolutionary Guards, on the Kuds Force, on the Ministry of Intelligence, on all of the the elements of the the security apparatus, um, on the Central Bank, on the National Iranian Oil Company, and some of those sanctions have had profound economic implications for Iran, um, and profound implications for the regime, but also for the people, right, who have suffered under those sanctions. I mean, I want to say, you know, you you mentioned you're you're, uh, you're an Iranian-American. I was actually born in South Africa. So I I lived in uh, in South Africa under apartheid, you know, another brutal regime. And uh, there were global sanctions imposed on the apartheid regime in South Africa. Um, Very tough economic sanctions, but also diplomatic sanctions, sports sanctions. Those sanctions were uh, almost wholeheartedly, I mean, with a few, few, very few exceptions supported by black South Africans and anti-apartheid activists, even though black South Africans disproportionately were impacted by those sanctions compared to white South Africans. So if you're a white South African like me living in the Northern suburbs of Johannesburg in the 1970s or eighties, you didn't really feel the effects of sanctions. But if you were a black South African living in Soweto in, uh, in Johannesburg, you know that it would really impact you much more than 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 a white South African on the but black South Africans supported them because they understood the only way to get rid of this terrible racist regime in jo- in Pretoria, um, the capital of South Africa, was to impose these very tough sanctions. I, I think, and again, I don't know because I'm not allowed to go to Iran and if I did, I'd get arrested and thrown in Evan prison. Um, but in my sense, again, from talking to Iranians, Um, they're contacting me via social media and listening to other experts on Iran is that, you know, the majority of Iranians, as you say, don't blame the United States for for these sanctions. They blame the regime and they're willing to pay the price of these sanctions if the United States is really committed to getting rid of the Islamic Republic. Now, if it's not, and this is going to be decades of deals with the Islamic Republic and attempts at reconciliation, And maybe Iranians are not worth, it's not worth paying that economic price if the United States is not going to support their democratic aspirations. But that's what I mean when we said at the beginning of the program, we need an effective Iran policy that may include nuclear agreements, but should not be limited to nuclear agreements. That should be basically a maximum pressure campaign to crack the regime and to give Democrats in Iran, democratic Iranians, who believe in freedom, the opportunity to to live a better life, more prosperous and and more free.
0: Well, that's our wish um, for for everyone around the world who's fighting for freedom, particularly the Iranian people who have so bravely come out to tell us that exact message. Thank you so much, Mark, for your work uh, on continued work on this, for uh, being sanctioned, but continuing to uh, trek forward. And uh, you can find Mark on Twitter, sometimes snarky, but always very honest, very smart. Uh, I enjoy your tweets very much. Uh, And for those of you who would like to uh, sign up for our podcast, you can go to youtube.com slash. Lisa Harry to sign up for our daily email. you can go to foreigndesknews.com and we will see you all next week.